0: This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, celebrity interviewer Heather Dean Really cool story, fantastic background where she, in her professional capacity, got to speak with luminaries like Robin Williams and Al Pacino and many others, and has her own Jewish journey. Today does a lot of production work on behalf of the Jewish people while living in Israel, so a lot to learn from in her story. A reminder as always to subscribe wherever you are listening, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, soundcloud spotify of course please share with your friends as well follow us on social media at jews you should know spelled out fully on instagram and facebook or with just the letter u on twitter comment suggestions love to hear from you jews you should know at gmail.com and please i hope everyone is staying safe and healthy during this very difficult coronavirus, COVID-19 period for those listening during our release window and anytime shortly thereafter here in May 2020 and beyond. And now to our conversation with celebrity interviewer, Heather Dean. We are here with Heather Dean, longtime celebrity interviewer, now speaker and author, teacher. How are you?
1: I'm great. Thank you very much for inviting me to be on your program. It's a great podcast.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate it. You obviously have great taste in podcasts. (laughs) And uh, tell us a little bit about, Heather, where you are coming from now and then more importantly where you originally came from to get there.
1: Right, right. Well, I am very fortunate to tell you that I'm coming from the Holy Land um, where I reside with my family. I Used to visit Israel a great deal as a youngster with my family, and then as an adult through uh, Torah's New York uh, community. So the family I grew up in was a family that uh, wasn't so religious, but definitely pro-Israel, pro-Zionist. The kind of family that that uh, my parents would buy Israel bonds. Before I was born, actually, for a time, my father was a professor at Technion University, which is, a, which is a top-tier engineering school in Haifa, in Israel. So definitely, you know, parents that loved Israel sent my siblings and I to, my siblings and me, to Hebrew school, which is an after-school program for public school students in our community in Ohio, in Northeastern Ohio.
0: Where uh, exactly did you live growing up?
1: So growing up, I lived in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which was a community. um, Yes, right. It's a suburb of Cleveland. I think it was back then 35,000 people. It had a sizable Jewish percentage, but it really wasn't one of those suburbs that was heavily Jewish by any means, but uh, definitely, um, you know, a respectable number of Jews. That would be more uh, Beachwood, University Heights, Cleveland Heights. Exactly. Yes.
0: Uh, so you went to a Jewish, a Hebrew school growing up. A little bit, kind of that typical American Hebrew school education. It sounds like.
1: Right. Exactly. So my folks were members of a conservative synagogue, so it. So I was not sent to a day school. And there, the Hebrew Academy of Cleveland is a very well known, well respected day school. Um, my parents opted, actually to live in Shaker Heights because of the outstanding reputation, the public school system was there. And it really was a great, for a public school, it was great. And I knew it the whole time I was there. Great teachers, great programs, diverse programs, diverse students. And that's, that's what they wanted. That's what they wanted. And so that meant the Jewish part,
0: uh, the Jewish education would just have to be after school, in Hebrew school. And did you have any early sense of what you wanted to do professionally?
1: Yes. I, I recall very clearly as a junior high school and high school student, In junior high I wanted to be a journalist and a news anchor. But in high school, I was so fascinated, still am, by consumer behavior, I thought I would go into advertising. So it, I knew it would be some aspect of communications that I would go into. And so, yeah, when, when it came time to enroll in university, I went the whole route of business marketing, again, with the goal of being an advertising executive. But my grades as a business student were awful. I had no business being a business <laughs> student. So <laughs> it was I took- oh school, by the way. Uh, I went to Case Western Reserve University. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did end up graduating there. I took a break for um, a year and realized I really could graduate college if only I majored in something I liked, like English, because I was good with the English language and still am, and grammar and uh, reading, writing, that whole thing. So I um, switched majors and graduated with an English major, actually with grades, finally, that were so good. They were actually better than the grades I got in high school so english uh, English was a very good choice for me to major in, and I gave up uh, wanting to go into advertising and marketing uh, because my school advisor, who was also the advisor to the college film society, um, that was my academic advisor um, i was I also belonged to the 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 film society, and this is where a love of cinema a love of creative arts really, really blossomed for me. So I continued on with English, and being a volunteer at the, the school's film society, I was asked to be a director of the film society in my senior year. So heading up a, a campus film society is a great responsibility, but also very creative. What does a film society
0: do? Are you producing was, films? Or? Right.
1: The Film Society is the group that actually programs what films are shown at at the campus uh, theater. So that's a a big responsibility when you decide this is the roster of films that are going to be shown at the campus movie theater. Um, This was just before the dawn of when everyone owned a VCR. You remember those? Mm -hmm. I do remember
0: those quite well. Sure.
1: So that kind of, you know, definitely um, made an impact on the cinema industry. But anyway,
0: when there's been a lot of power in this era,
1: (laughs) right, right back then. And also I hosted a um, weekly college radio show. So just really all the creative juices flowing. I knew that this was uh, somehow I'd be in some area of production. I wasn't sure if it would be film production one day, radio or television production, What really locked in that I would end up working in television was an internship I had at the CBS affiliate in San Francisco. Um, My folks had moved to the Bay Area when I was in college. uh, My dad accepted a chairmanship at the San Jose State University's business school Uh, I guess he was
0: good
1: at business. (laughs) He he was great at business. He was the internationally renowned uh, scholar of business and industrial engineering. So yeah. So when I was visiting my folks that summer, I was accepted um, among many candidates to be a, an intern at the CBS affiliate. And I just had such a great summer working super hard as an intern there. Um, what, what clinched it, though, was while, while I was deciding, do I end up going into film production as a career or television production, I saw at that CBS affiliate so many women who were in positions of power making important decisions of what, what was going to be programmed there on television. Um, and at the time, still it happens to this day, there really aren't so many women who are in positions of power making uh, critical decisions. So it was just for me, as they say in Hebrew, it was a simple decision that I would go into um, television production. And I was off and running thanks to that internship.
0: Going back to Case Western, what were some of the movies that you brought to town over there for your any of them?
1: Right. Yes, I definitely do. So one of the things that was special about the Film Society is that um, during the week, there were films that students would pay for at a greatly discounted price. But Sundays was always a free series. So that was so much fun to program what was going to be the Sunday series for the semester. It was always a theme. So, one semester I programmed um, a Sunday series with different sports films, and that series was called This Sporting Life, which is also the name of a film about um, athletes. So, uh, was this, so that this was, was in the 80s? When was this? It was in the
0: late 80s. So, late I would. 80s. So that was that a Losers era, or what was what were the big films well, out
1: Well, so one week it was Raging Bull with Robert De Niro, that movie. And another week it would be Downhill Racer, which is a skiing film starring Robert Redford, as I recall. Um, so, so different films that were about different kinds of sports. And then there's a different semester I programmed films that were all films that starred James Stewart. Do you remember Jimmy Stewart? I do, sure. Uh, back then he was alive, and I thought, uh, and I really tried that within this Sunday series. I tried through his people in Hollywood when he—this is when he was alive—to to have him come and be a guest uh, for that weekend. And uh, but they—they uh, they very politely declined. It just, <laughs> just too advanced in age to make the trip to Cleveland and all that. So That's a, uh, it's
0: a wonderful life. What were his uh, movies?
1: You know, wonder—it's a wonderful life. I, I've seen it so many times, and sometimes I, I'm just in tears from start to finish. It's such an inspiring film. Um, really, really, something lovely. But uh, yeah, so he, but he—he he starred in the Glenn Miller story, and he starred in the, uh, co-starred in the Philadelphia story. Um, many, many classic films. He starred in two Hitchcock movies. Uh, it was really a tremendous career, and he was uh definitely a beloved actor well to
0: to make it more jewish just to uh yeah to bring it around according to i m d b his last role was in american Tale, Five goes west the nineteen ninety one classic where he wow. was the voice of Wiley so there you have it. His last yeah. role was a Jewish sort of kind of role <laughs> excellent excellent thank you <laughs> there, there we go I that. And while you were there as well, what was the Jewish life on campus like?
1: Right. So the Jewish life I know there's a campus hillel. At this point in my life and for a very long time back then, um Judaism and, and anything to do with religion was completely off the radar for me. And this is what a childhood of Hebrew school can do to a person. Um, There's a famous, there's a famous joke that uh, a synagogue is having a hard time getting rid of the rats that were infesting the classrooms and the the whole synagogue. And so they came up with the solution is that they bar mitzvahed the rats and the rats never showed up again. There you go. (laughs) So, um, and and this is, uh, this is what happened to so many people around me, myself included is that, um, it, uh, unfortunately, you know, other than the benefit of learning how to speak, read, and write Hebrew, which, did, which was part of the curriculum, and learning about the state of Israel, there was basically almost no education about what Judaism is. And I write about this in my book, that uh, one day that solidified that for me was where they had a guest rabbi from a different uh, congregation come for an Ask the Rabbi day. And uh, this, this took place in one hour of one of the classes. And he picked out of a hat one uh, a question. He was going to pick out of a hat different questions that uh, we were allowed to submit. He picked out one question, and it ended up being the entire question that took the whole hour. And that question was, who wrote the Bible? And if you can imagine someone hemming and hawing for an hour over who wrote the Bible and could not come up with a definitive answer, You know, you and I both know that answer is in one word, who wrote the Bible, and that's the Almighty. Um, But I just thought, wow, well, you know, this is definitely not something that even this rabbi is connecting to. None of us students were connecting to Judaism. It was um, not relevant to our lives. It was definitely not exciting or interesting. It was the sort of thing we just had to go to because our parents said and uh, by the time people were bar mitzvahed, bat mitzvahed, really people had had enough by then. And I don't know anybody from that. I, I know one person from the Hebrew school system from my my hometown that uh, is a religious Jew today other than me. And she and I uh, were friends in junior high and uh, friends to this day. And she lives in a different neighborhood in in, in Israel. So, um
0: but, but that's it. That's not that's right. But not not much activity at Case Western in terms of your Jewish.
1: Oh no, for me, no, 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 no. I had friends of and roommates of all religions and all backgrounds, and no. In fact, one of the things I write about in my book is with a name like Heather Dean, so nobody really knew I was Jewish, and I was definitely of the school of don't ask, don't tell because in my early early year freshman year i would overhear people saying very terrible things about israel or or, or jewish people and i thought wow i'm just going to hide behind this name heather dean <laughs> and really get an earful if i must of what people really think of jewish people or of israel and so, because yeah, I was well liked in college, so I didn't. I didn't want people to make, feel uncomfortable, or for me to do any gotcha kind of moments. I was sort of like being the journalist, you know, the the undercover journalist. Fly on the wall. You fly on the wall, getting exactly getting a feel of what they. Uh, what
0: what, what was, was, your was your radio doing. show about there?
1: So my radio show, oh, was that so fun. I have a smile on my face because that was <laughs> such a pleasure. Many years of programming, college radio show. So I always I just did a music show, pure and simple music show and classic college radio. College radio was really, really in its heyday actually when I was there. I'm part of the Gen X uh, generation. And so Gen X music. I still think to this day is some of the best uh like the 80s uh, stuff X. where
0: you play pop oh, Michael Jackson God. where you were playing
1: so pop, that's pop music so yeah. next music for college radio was I was into R.E.M. before The Rest of the World before they got their Before their Out radio. of Time Right right so before so by the time they released Out of Time they were with uh, Warner Brothers well, even bef- with Document I think was they were already uh starting to be with Warner Brothers but before then there was an independent label and uh, so so a lot of groups that were independent labels you know Susie and the Banshees and the Cocteau Twins and all these other fantastic groups from, from Gen X it was, it was a, a terrific terrific
0: time. Did you go it, by DJ Dean?
1: No, no. I was, I was, I was <laughs> Heather. I was
0: Heather Heather, Dean. DJ Dean could have worked. I'm just saying. That's so cute. That's really cute. We're a little late for it now, but uh, <laughs> right, if you ever revisit right. that vocation, you can... I leave. don't know.
1: Is there somebody named DJ Dean that I I, know?
0: I mean, it just has a good ring to it.
1: Ah, right, right, right. So, you know, my father, having been a college professor, people thought, oh, he should head the School of Management. <laughs> to <go> to <laughs> the Dean. Dean.
0: Uh, huh, huh. Yeah. <laughs> was Dean shortened from something, or what? Where was that origin? Oh so,
1: yes, it was shortened by some unpronounceable name from the shtetl, but uh, none. That, it was a Kohanic name actually. Oh, interesting. Well, uh, had
0: one named oh. who was a who was a priest.
1: Right, right, right. So, um, so it's a shortened name from uh, a Yiddish way of saying the servant of of the the friend of the servant, something like that. The servant of the friend. So whatever. Um, uh th- thankfully i uh, one of my brothers is religious and he uh is a full Kohen in good standing and uh Duhins and does everything uh kohan can do in our day duchaning right. Dean
0: there we go right 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 I should tell him that not d j dean but duchening no. Dean close second right so you're out in san francisco and you're uh, you're doing this whole t v kind of production right. gig. Yes. What did you really get kind to of fall in love with out there about that business? Okay. Oh, love it. Okay, great. Great
1: question. So, so television production is so fantastic. Um, one of the big thrills which, which um, I write about in Searching for Heather Dean is I explain in the memoir what it's like to work in a television production office. And that starts with actually getting in the door. So when you have your magnetic card, your security card, to get through the door, and you are it's like going into Oz. I really felt that way, and I still get chills. Like, wow, I really did that. I really had a career in television. That uh, you go into a production room, and it's um, especially, uh, whether it was KPIX CBS in San Francisco, um, when I was graduating college, I started, my first uh, I, I got my foot in the door at mtv uh, so wherever it is in tv it's um once you get into that production room there's a lot of activity and because when i graduated college uh, and, and and was working in new york city in television so that is really where the ripple starts of the ripple effect of television news and including MTV, that meant music news and popular culture news. So I was hearing things at the early morning staff meetings that the rest of the country and the rest of the world would yet to find out. So if there was a press conference coming up or if so-and-so was releasing this or announcing that, I would hear about it early morning at the staff meeting, and then the producers were each assigned, go follow this story or set up that interview or you know whatever it was. So... Um, and then yes it would be news uh, put on uh, put on television shortly thereafter and um, very very exciting it's, it's it's a it really is exciting working in, tel- in television um, I'm very glad I don't work in television anymore, but when I was in it and when that was the focus of my world so yeah it was a great deal of fun and um, only now looking back do I realize that was part of a spiritual journey. I didn't realize it back then, and I was not on a spiritual quest back then when I started out in television. But looking back, I realized the kind of access that I was given to work on, whether it was the number one live morning talk show in San Francisco, or later on to work in MTV, and later on after that to work at E! Entertainment Television. I, and to you know to get to the point where I'm interviewing A-list actors, actresses, every comedian you can imagine, models, Broadway stars, this incredible, incredible career, interviewing celebrities on a daily basis, and all of the perks and all of the gifts, as if you know what swag means, and all of the um, and celebrity friends and the whole The whole thing I realized now was part of a greater plan, but when I was in it, yes, it was a great deal of fun, and i just um, i, I didn 't realize then that having that kind of access in that world and being a key player in that world um, it was it was for a better reason than just promoting bruce willis 's movies and and Robert De Niro's movies and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's movies, uh, there's a greater purpose than
0: that. But what, that was, was your, what was your actual role at, at initially? Were you on the production side? And it sounds like eventually you migrated to the uh, on-camera side or you know, yes. the actual interviewing.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly right. Yes, you read the book. So that's what, that's, what happens. See, that's what happens when you are in any business long enough is that if you're good at it, you will be considered the expert. So for example, you are uh, an executive director where you are. And I know that you didn't, you weren't, you didn't go to rabbi school. And first thing they said, let's make you executive director of this chapter of Meor. Um, it, it happens when you work hard and uh, know a thing or two. So yes, I worked really super hard as a, in television production, which meant I gained lots of experience of how to conduct shoots, television shoots on location or in a studio, and that's because I started Low Man on the Totem Pole. So I saw the experienced people, the actual producers do this. And I saw actual producers conducting interviews with very big, important people. So eventually, you, know, you, you assist enough, then they give you your shot. And I got my shot over and over again. And I was the one now on behalf of MTV or E! in New York City anyway, um, attending press conferences, press junkets, one-on-one interviews, working Hands-on with the camera crew to make sure they got this kind of a shot, that kind of a shot. Working with editors to make sure that they dissolved from one frame to the next in a certain way. A lot of decisions that I saw the people ahead of me doing, so that when it was my turn, I knew what to do. Um, eventually, I would say over the course of uh, several years—probably five, six, seven, eight years—in the business. So. Um, I was also producing interviews for the Associated Press. And Associated Press, AP, is the largest news service in the world. Uh, And the nice thing about a a service like AP or Reuters or United Press International is that for little um, markets like Kansas City, Cleveland, Chicago, Detroit, Uh, big markets also they you know they can't possibly be everywhere but the associated press can and that's why a service like that is so big because their um their uh reporters in every and editors in every town right so i was for associated press i worked as a uh, freelancer who was in new york city my role was just be in new york city and interview every celebrity that comes through New York, and then that goes out over the AP radio feed. Um, once in a while, on behalf of AP in New York, I would go up to Toronto to cover the Toronto Film Festival or go down to Atlanta to interview Val Kilmer and Kim Basinger for the movie they starred in, you know, whatever it was. Uh, I was Is that a Batman dad- movie? Uh, no, so with Kim Basinger, that was for a movie she started with Val Kilmer, which was, oh, right, I see what you're saying. No, they they were in a movie together, which was sort of like a family drama. It was, uh, that was not for Batman. Although I interviewed Val Kilmer for a different thing. Do you remember, he did a Western, It was a really good Western uh, about Wyatt Earp. So he played Doc Holliday. So I remember him okay. for that, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, so anyway, um, so eventually having been this interviewer of celebrities for several years, it got to a point I was already interviewing over a thousand, close to 2000 plus uh, people that were in the entertainment business. So includes a lot of famous people, but also directors and producers and uh, composers who did film scores. So many, many, many people. So So by the time you get to that level Uh, I was invited by this or that news network to come to the studio and I would be the pundit, sort of like how, you know, on political shows, meet the press. So you have pundits who weigh in on this because they become the experts. So I was sort of like occasionally filling that role of the expert celebrity uh, entertainment reporter who uh, was asked to, I don't know, go down to the Fox uh, news studio and Um, give feedback on last night's Oscars or to go to NBC News and be interviewed about this or that celebrity. Um, uh, So this would happen with a good deal of frequency, but I still kept my day day job
0: and just did celebrity
1: interviews constantly.
0: Who would arrange the interviews? Would somebody do that for you or or you had to hustle your own gigs?
1: So, okay, so that's a really interesting question because when it's at that level that I was um, producing interviews for such big networks like MTV or E or the Associated Press radio network. So the pitches would come to me. They would come to me directly because I was the producer. So I was on everyone's mailing list and I would constantly get mail from all the different movie studios or television studios to let them know um so let's think of a big movie like star wars okay so when star wars uh was coming up with one of their sequels so paramount pictures would inform me uh and invite me along with um, other my colleagues to um to screen the film to to come to uh at a certain date and location to interview everybody uh, in the cast and the director, George Lucas. And I remember one of my colleagues was very upset that it happened to have been on Mother's Day <laughs> that uh, Paramount scheduled this for the Star Wars version that was with Nellie Portman, like the first time she was in. Oh, nice, you
0: know, was- nice Israeli girl. Yeah. yeah,
1: nice Israeli girl, yeah. So that's how that would happen. I was just invited constantly to interview these people go to press junkets whatever it was so uh i didn't have to hustle anything there was once in a while i would hear this or that celebrity is coming to town and i would just ask my editor so i do you want me to go for this interview and the answer would be either yes or no it was usually yes if you know if i, if I made the suggestion i kind of knew what my editor was going for so
0: so when you were doing these kinds of Interviews, what would be the relationship because it sounds like you would become social with them at some point and go to parties and different events did it become a friendship relationship or you know more of a social relationship as well or with some of these uh, personalities right so um,
1: yes I mean i I definitely got asked out a great deal uh, but you know I <laughs> I, I I would just sort of like laugh it off usually, um, so i you know what I actually had a, my my friends were from all different realms of New York, you know, of New York City New York City is such a diverse diverse place, so I had friends from my neighborhood, um, but I also had friends from the comedy world, and these were struggling stand up comedians who would just go to all the different comedy clubs and try to get time on stage. Nowadays they're very super famous. Um but I remember when they were just starting out we were just friends who would hang out and um and I was never a comedian and I was never a comedian's girlfriend but uh these were just these were all buddies of mine. That was my favorite group of Any friends. Any of them household names now? Oh, uh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Of course. Yeah, yeah. So um so one of my great good friends uh was Daryl Hammond, who is the cast member of Saturday Night Live? He's no longer cast, yeah. he's like the announcer, but he was the longest running cast member of Saturday Night Live and a dear, wonderful person. It was really uh, surreal to also interview him for a few of his projects once he was famous because um, we were like good buddies. But with Daryl, um, so I remember when he was, he was. Very well respected, but just nobody—nobody um, r- n- nobody in show business really, really um, knew him so well back then. And I remember when he was nervous and asking, uh, "Do you know the comedian Jeff Ross? He's now the roastmaster general." So to
0: I heard the name. I don't know. Uh, yeah.
1: Okay, so Jeff Ross. I remember like at one, one night at uh, the comedy cellar in the. Where, where the comedians hang out before they go on stage. And he was saying, Oh, I'm so nervous. Uh, uh this is Daryl saying that, uh, I was invited to go on Letterman and what am I going to do? And I have six minutes. And so Jeff Ross is like calming him down. Like, dude, I've done it. I've done it a couple of times. This is what you can expect. And I'm, and I remember this very, very clearly, this conversation and Daryl has not only gone on Letterman, but, you know, the Tonight Show and SNL and the rest is history. So this is one example of many friends of mine who are household names. And if people want to know more about that, so that's also in my memoir, there's many stories uh, of that.
0: Incredible. So who who would you say, because you were interviewing some exceptionally talented people, right. whether they are paragons of virtue in their private lives or not, but certainly, you know, people at the the peak of their professional, uh, abilities. Who would you say you really learned from and, and what the, what were some of the messages you gained from speaking with such high achieving people?
1: Oh my goodness. Well, there's a question I've not been asked. Who did I learn from? Um, there are, pre- there's many people I learned. Don't be like them. <laughs> um, who have I learned from? I, I would say that um, hmm, most of my life lessons really would come after that. And I'll tell you why. When it comes to lessons that stay, have staying power and stay with me, these are lessons that would later come when I would take classes about authentic Judaism. There are many times that I, I'm really sorry to name drop drop here, but I interviewed Al Pacino several times. And I remember one time he had said some very interesting things about acting. And what I could tell you what Al Pacino had to say about acting and Justin Hoffman told me about acting, it would probably take about five minutes to tell you that. Now, if I contrast that with listening to a class by the great Rabbi Sipora Heller, which I did earlier this evening for an hour, or listening to a class by Rabbi Kellerman, or Rabbi Dr. David Gottlieb, and on and on, Rabbi Akiva Tatz—all these superstars of the Jewish world—so these are lessons for life that are so fulfilling and so enriching that that is what has staying power and and applicable lessons that I that stay with me throughout the day in family life, marriage, friendships, just m- between me and the creator, whatever it is. That's what has staying power. But yes, I could tell you five minutes worth of material about acting because of in conversations I've had with actors. And I could tell you a bit about directing from conversations I've had about, but you know, what does that do for life? What, what does that really tell you that, that has staying power and something that's relevant to life.
0: I guess the potentially the portable lessons would be you know, people who have had to sacrifice a great deal or had to hone their craft, you know, in a very yeah. specific way in order yeah. to reach a certain level of, of excellence.
1: I hear that. So I'm, I'm thinking to, you know, it's so one of the people that's considered the best actresses of her generation, Meryl Streep. So I interviewed her once and she, she didn't talk so much about honing her craft, but she did refer to herself and her iconography, her star status as, quote, this thing that I've become. Um, for example, I'd asked her, do you think you'd ever host Saturday Night Live as a guest host? And uh, she just laughed it off. I mean, she answered no, that uh, she wouldn't, and part of it was because of this thing that she had become. So you know, she didn't talk so much about honing their craft, um when a celebrity does an interview with a journalist they're they're paid by the studio to promote the movie, so what they they don't really want to talk about their personal life so much. they don't want to talk about themselves and their struggles they they are there because they must talk about whatever the next project is, the movie or the the record album and um they're not. So they're not so interested in revealing their deep dark secrets and I think also with honing their craft it's a it's a hard thing to explain it's a hard thing to explain now in the case of Daryl Hammond um, he does talk about because he's such a, um, a top-tier uh, impressionist among other comedy talents so he yeah, so then he'll talk about like how he achieves um, his ability to do those impressions. And I've spoken with other actors and actresses who are impressionists. So some of the actors, yeah, they would talk about how they, their method to doing the impression. When I talked to Yardley Smith, who does the voice of Lisa Simpson, so she was not interested in talking about that. It was just uh, for her, not because she's rude. She was actually very sweet, but she uh, she just, didn't want to talk about the craft. Maybe it's because it's personal or because she doesn't find it interesting to talk about. But, um, yeah. When
0: you were in these situations at that time, putting yourself back into that scenario. Yes. Did you feel starstruck? Were you enamored of these people? Were you unimpressed by these people? Did you, was it just kind of a matter of fact, a a job for you?
1: I like that question. So I had started from a really, really young age. So my first celebrity interview goes back to my local Cleveland days. Um, I started doing celebrity interviews just as a, on a lark as a junior high school student uh, reporting for the school paper. And um, I wasn't so interested in, in, in reporting on the sports teams of the junior high or the, I don't know, the AV club or the chess club or the physics club. But I was interested in interviewing local Cleveland celebrities, so I would get on the phone and I would call the whatever it is, the CBS affiliate, ABC affiliate, and get put right through to that newscaster and ask them point blank, "May I interview you from my school newspaper?" And they all agreed, like one by one by one. Sure, they
0: did. Yeah, that's great. Yeah,
1: isn't that funny? But one by one, I interviewed so many of the local Cleveland news news people or or show hosts and um, not knowing at all that that would one day be my career of interviewing celebrities it was just this thing I was I wanted to do as this uh, starstruck junior high school student by the time I was at MTV so um, I would say that my very first press junket uh, my very first celebrity interview for MTV was just me one-on-one interviewing Steve Martin. So that's where, as the interview had gotten underway, I had a surreal moment of, holy, holy moly. Oh, I was thinking something else. Uh, holy cow.
0: That's what you were thinking, <laughs> yeah, right.
1: then. Holy cow, that's this is Steve Martin. And, you know, when I was... Uh, I, I remember, do you remember Steve Martin, the wild and crazy guy back in the days of Saturday Night Live? Absolutely. This, Steve yeah. Martin from my childhood. Um, and uh, I mean, I've since interviewed Steve Martin several times, but that first time, all right, for so that moment, I had a surreal moment, and that was it. After that, I, I had interviewed just several celebrities for MTV, and once you get that under your belt, uh, at least in my case, so no, I was never starstruck after that, never, not even with Al Pacino and Robin Williams, maybe with De Niro, because at the time he was my favorite actor, Um, but no, no, and there were some really, really super big people. The one person I was a little bit afraid of, at first was Mike Wallace, who was the great reporter for uh,
0: 60 years 60 or something minutes. like that.
1: 60, 60 minutes, years, yes. 60 okay. minutes, yeah. 60 minutes. Um, he was such an intrepid and uh, feared reporter. He was one of those reporters uh, that would catch um, crooked businessmen and crooked politicians. And everyone was afraid of him. Um, and I was afraid of him, too. I have no idea why. Had nothing to hide. But it was Mike Wallace, after all. And uh, within 10 seconds, the guy, he was such a pussycat. And I interviewed him in his home and later at his office at 60 Minutes, and he recorded uh, an outgoing message for my answering machine. Do you remember those? <laughs> uh, so, he, so you know, so no, I, I really, really don't
0: get starstruck. Many of these uh, personalities, of course, are Jewish. Um, yes. Did Judaism yes. ever come up? Was it ever... Yes. Kind of a touch point between the two of you? Yes,
1: yes. It came up, especially when I was becoming more religious, which I did not intend to happen when I was a celebrity reporter. But uh, there you have it. I did become uh, more interested in, a, in exploring my Jewish uh, heritage. And as yeah, so take me
0: through that a little bit. When did that start to happen? And Were you kind of growing tired of, of the whole industry? And, or did you just kind of run into certain personalities that had an influence on you? Right,
1: right. That's a great question. So what had happened was, I really wasn't a, a religious person when I went into um, show business as a reporter. And I wasn't interested in becoming religious, just none of it. Again, so turned off by the whole Hebrew school experience and, uh, and didn't feel any spiritual connection to anything. Um, it was around the time though, when I was at MTV, again, Gen X and the new age movement was really gaining a lot of traction and a lot of it seemed to be very alluring um and i wasn't like a new agey flipped out kind of person but by chance i guess um i had heard some classes that a nice jewish girl named marianne williamson would give on uh, the local cable access channel in new york city And, um, so I would watch some of these lectures and then when she would come to New York city from where she lived in Los Angeles. So sometimes I would see her in person at town hall and, uh, yeah. So those, those, she had a lot of interesting things to say, not, uh, Jewish, but, uh, interesting spiritual lessons about replacing feelings of fear with feelings of love and a a lot of new agey, uh, kind of stuff from a, uh, a book that she considered a holy book which i read and uh yeah whatever it wasn't it wasn't a jewish book but that whole new age movement that at least it got a little bit of a spiritual interest that came to the fore and when i realized that the, that the spiritual philosophy that she was perpetuating um was actually like this house of cards that was not based in any kind of truth and not based in any kind of uh um prophet P R O P H E T. Um it maybe the other kind of prophet, but not uh, not a not a genuine prophet. So so already i was a bit of a spiritual seeker just a bit disappointed quite disappointed that that was not uh, the spiritual the true path to god so i started to explore like what is the true the true spiritual path to god and when i was at a certain crossroad in my life um, i had i had this sudden on, onset of a fear of flying so i asked my friend rebecca you know, I, I want to get over this. And uh, I had also a sudden um, onset of hypochondria. I detail this in my book. Um, I thought, I really want to shake this because it's no good having a fear of flying if you're a journalist that gets flown to this or that uh, film festival. And uh, the hypochondria was coinciding with my own mother of Blessed memory, with her, the d- decline in her, her health so i i had remembered something that my mother had said when i was a kid about how rabbis counsel people and i thought that was a bit of a joke because i really thought rabbis they just you know give sermons at a pulpit or something um but i but here i was in new york city sort of spiritual, not religious, and had no clue, like where's there a rabbi around here, which is a joke, because it was New York City after all. So I asked my friend Rebecca. (laughs) Where isn't there a (laughs) rabbi? Right, exactly, but I had no clue. So I asked my friend Rebecca, who was sort of in touch with uh, the Jewish community, could she recommend a rabbi that I could go speak to about this hypochondria and also fear of flying. And so she gave me a list of four rabbis and their phone numbers that she knew i just randomly called the first rabbi on the list scheduled a meeting talked to this rabbi he was very very nice and uh listened to all my problems about hypochondria and like everything else i was going through and uh toward the end of this hour that he had given me of his time i thought wow he's been so nice and heard my me pour my heart out about these issues i should probably ask him a jewish question so to humor him i asked him you know, Rabbi, I uh, my parents are both Jewish, and one day maybe I'll have a family of my own. How do I impart my my Jewish heritage to my kids? So he went into this thing about uh, the mind-body-soul connection and how bodies, uh, we human beings are having a spiritual existence and spiritual, uh, you know, some some sort of like very high-level Jewish philosoph- philosophical answer that I, that I wasn't quite ready for, but I knew that... I, I had tapped into something deep and, and a deep question that I wasn't really prepared for the answer. So this, you know, our, our meeting was finished. He walked me to the door and also said, you know, if you are curious about J- Judaism, where we are, this center, this is a center where people learn about their Jewish heritage. Like you, they're also Jewish people who maybe they didn't grow up with such a strong Jewish uh, education. And they come here to your classes, services, whatever it is. I'm certainly not going to nudge you, but you're welcome to come anytime. I think you'll find that the people here are very warm. And so and where it has. was
0: that was that M.J.E. or H? So it
1: wasn't M.J.E., but um, it, uh, I actually did return months later to this center. Again, I didn't know what the name was. I just knew it was on West 83rd Street. and uh, so you know what I'm talking about so it was on West 83rd Street and I returned there because there were no celebrities to interview that day and that day was Rosh Hashanah and all of the publicists of these celebrities were in Temple so I thought all right well I'm just going to put on some nice clothes go to this place on 83rd Street and that's when I saw the sign outside said uh, A-I-S-H and I didn't even know how to pronounce it. I just wondered, well, what is, what is Aish or Aish, whatever Aish, is the word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's the great Aisha Torah, of course. And uh, slowly, slowly, I would go back to classes. I would bring a friend sometimes, uh, one of my MTV friends I would bring to a class. And, um, and yeah, slowly, slowly, a Shabbat meal here, a class there. Uh, and then, and then came the Steve Eisenberg experience, his famous standing room only uh, weekly Torah portion class. Um, sure. That was also a, a big hit. So um, now in Miami. Now he's in Miami. Yeah. You know Steve Eisenberg and I were under the chuppah. Let me to tell you why.
0: I'm, Steve I'm curious.
1: <laughs> Not together. <laughs> All right, we were together under the chuppah, but he was my witness at the wedding of myself and my husband. Wow. I, I thought, I've got to get Steve Eisenberg under the chuppah one way or another, and if he's going to be my witness, hopefully that'll send a message to heaven to send him send him a wife, something. But um, uh, yeah, so the great Steve Eisenberg. I, I, I'm very, very grateful to him and all of the Asha Torah staff, the rabbis, the rabbisons their families. Uh, um, and and here I am 20 years later and uh, uh, hosting a podcast for Aish.com, the, the place that started it all, Aisha Torah.
0: So eventually you obviously did matriculate out of the show business industry. What was that whole process and how did you end up in Israel?
1: Right. Okay. So with Aisha Torah, um, Aish New York. Uh, When I started there in the late 1990s, really it was a center of Jewish learning. And that was pretty much it learning, classes, um, Shabbat, Hagim, you know, everything you can imagine a community center being. And then came tremendous uh, subsidies from people in the community who would subsidize uh, Ash congregants' um, trips to Israel. So I was on the second Asha Torah mission to Israel, which is you know a tour, ten-day tour, is very nice. And I hadn't been to Israel since I was fourteen. At that Jerusalem time. fellowships. It was uh, it was a it was a regular Ash mission. This was before fellowships. Um, so just an Asha Torah, just mission, just a trip, and. Um, I was, I just, uh, you know, when I had started to already learn about these, from these classes they gave, about this is what our father Abraham did, and Isaac and Jabin, and like all these different places um, in the Torah, and then when you're actually in Israel, and you are seeing this, it's just, the connection that's made is incredible, and um, so... This was uh, back when you could go. You you could actually go to Jericho. <laughs> uh, a Jewish person could go to Jericho, and so we we were, we were in Jericho, and we were um, along the um, I guess it would be the, the 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 road of of Jordan, like the Jordanian highway um, in Israel. So just all these places that you could that. Um, it, the Bible just really came to life. And not only that, then there was the day we went up to the Golan Heights, and I really flipped out at how gorgeous the the Galil, the Galilee, the Golan Heights. And a lot of the things I had learned at, uh, and read in the prayer book actually bounced out for me once I was up in the Galilee and, and the Golan Heights um, because of how lush the land of Israel is you know Israel may be a small land size wise geographically but there are so many climates and um types of types of land in Israel that um if you're prepared for it you can really just connect with all of it or a certain part of it but um When I was in the Golan, I realized this really is God's promise to the Jewish people of such bounty in the land and such beauty. So from then on, anytime I could come back to Israel, I did. So when Torah did its next mission, uh, which was a learning mission. It wasn't so much touring at all, but it was being in classes all day, something I'd never experienced. And I loved it. I drank it up. It was the first time I'd learned Kumish with Rashi. And this was in Israel at uh, uh executive learning center in the old city. And um, yeah, so it, was, so it was fabulous. So trip after trip, I, I just, um, it's not easy when you're a journalist with deadlines to get, 10 days together at a time to go anywhere. But um, at least my editor was fine. Like he kept my seat warm if I needed to take off for Israel for another 10 days. Um, my assistant was very, very happy to substitute, fill in, and do those celebrity interviews for me. And uh, I was, I just loved being in Israel. I didn't like leaving in Israel, but I knew I had a fantastic job to go back to in New York City. I really, really enjoyed being a celebrity interviewer. It was a great job, and i wasn 't ready to give that up at all so it was uh, it 's the hardest thing when you're when you have a foot in both worlds right it 's the hardest thing when you really want to be in one place and yet you 're drawn to another. so I was very fortunate when the opportunity came up to learned for a, a few months actually in Israel when that came up and again I, I, I thank my editor in the states for at least not saying well just you know why don't you just uh, like for firing me he did not fire me he just said okay we'll keep your seat warm when you get back you know you'll you're back you're back in the saddle you get back to work <laughs> so um, the thing is is that when the opportunity came up to really learn in Israel for a couple months that was at Neve Yerushalayim, which is a, an English language college for women, all about Jewish studies. And I was really where I wanted to be in a class, learning about Judaism in a great, with great uh, scholarly teachers. And I extended my leave of absence another month and then another couple of months and on and on until one year later, I'm still at Neve Yerushalayim Still on the payroll at the the network, but, you know, obviously I'm letting my assistant uh, get paid in in my place. Um, So one year later, uh, after being in Nebuchadnezzar Lime, I was uh, in Jerusalem introduced to my future husband.
0: What was his background? What was he doing in Israel?
1: yeah so actually he it's funny because he had been in yeshiva as a teenager so it's sort of like i've been playing catch-up to him all along but uh he um yeah no he runs his own business and uh still learns every day but i'll tell you that that year where i was in israel learning uh, about my Jewish heritage, learning about the role of a Jewish woman, learning so much about the Torah portion and um, different Svarim, different holy Jewish books. Um, you know, it, it 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 really was a serious crossroad for me where I would meet with this mentor or that, just a couple of mentors, especially and uh, Sipora Heller, who is my Rebbetzin to this day, thank God, and you know, just like basically cry uh, with them over how much I wanted to stay in Israel, and yet I've just I have the most fantastic job for anyone who's a fan of of show business, popular culture. I really had the most fantastic job, so it was really hard. It's really hard thing, but I'm having this conversation with you in Israel, where my husband and I have been for. We've been married over 18 years, and where our children were all born, and uh, yeah, here we are. So
0: the decision. What made you finally kind of take that leap? It really was just trusting
1: in God. You know, knowing that uh, this is really—I just this is really where I felt at home. And what was easy for me to take that leap was probably because I had already interviewed Robin Williams five times. I had already interviewed like so many celebrities multiple times. So it wasn't new anymore. In fact, um, do you remember the movie Dave with uh, Kevin Klein know. and Sigourney <laughs> Weaver? Okay. Yeah. It was a great comedy, really, really one of the best comedies uh, directed by, I think Frank Oz. Uh, no, sorry. Um, who was the one that did the big chill? Uh, Kasdan, Lawrence Kasdan. I think that's who did it. Right. So I had an opportunity to interview Kevin Kline, who is one of my favorite actors. And Sigourney, uh, and you know what I did? Like the day of the interview, I was living in New York City, and I just actually had someone else fill in for me because at that point I was already kind of like done. Um, I I ended up probably uh, my my favorite sport is race walking, and I probably just ended up race walking (laughs) instead of that day. Um, So I so I was I was done. Um, it lost its luster after just so many times interviewing so many famous great celebrities. And the other thing I'll tell you, this is a dirty little secret about Hollywood movies is that for the most part, there are so few gems, maybe just a handful of gems. There's definitely a lot of duds of movies that are being made, but the vast majority are just so, so, so mediocre. And as somebody who covered films, uh, I could see, okay, that's why this was green-lighted, meaning that's why this script was probably approved and they got this star in that role and that star in another role. I could tell this is why this movie was made, but uh, what, it's so mediocre. And when you spend so many hours in a screening room watching mediocre movie after mediocre movie, and then... You know, to to do interviews with these great big stars to talk about some mediocre movie, there's just so very few gems, and oh, it was it was just it got to be drudgery. What can I say? It was just drudgery, and so much of television to me is mediocre. And you know, to compare that with learning about authentic Judaism, which is which that just became and is still just so much more exciting because that's like, as we say, La Misa, these are life lessons applicable to, to real life. And why do I need to watch pretend movies that aren't very good anyway and interview celebrities who really aren't so interesting and so smart And when there's something so much better out there? And uh, and that's that's Judaism. It's so much better.
0: You mentioned that at some point, as you were becoming more active in Judaism, you would interface with some of these Jewish celebrities. Yes. Judaism would be kind of part of the, the currency of that conversation. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: So there was one time that I interviewed, um, it was the second time I interviewed Woody Allen. And... There was a film that he directed with Sean Penn called Sweet and Love. And one of the very first jokes in the movie was, uh, it's not, it, wasn't, it was a very not nice joke told by not nice characters and it was disparaging of, um, of Jew, Jew, Jews. Um, of a Jewish stereotype, and so I called him on it, and I asked Woody Allen why that was included in the movie, and he's just sort of laughed it off, like, oh, that's just an old, such an old joke, it's such an old stereotype, I felt that it could be laughed at. Um, so, you know, whatever, He uh, he's obviously very publicly disconnected with his Judaism, that um, a lot of his jokes are reductions upon reductions of um, jewish uh, tropes anti-semitic tropes so you know um, th- that was that was a uh, uh, that was a bit disappointing there were other jewish people though that uh, they interviewed she may not be so well known at all to the audience but she was a celebrity photographer Lyn Gold- Lynn goldsmith and she still is um, so she had she had interesting things to say about this or that interest of her own Jewish uh, heritage, but also she had she has photographed so many um, Jewish celebrities, and you know, so she and I would talk about um, uh, which which uh, of the her Jewish clients uh, showed an interest in in Judaism. For example, Max Weinberg, who is the famous drummer and band leader for Conan O'Brien's. Um, show he's no longer he le- left for greener pastures but uh so i've interviewed him several times and you know so he has he has a bit of an interest
0: so heather in closing what are you doing today you've written a book and tell us what that's called and, and and what else do you do tell us about the podcast and and so forth great.
1: great okay so the book that i wrote is a memoir called searching for Heather Dean." And um, searching for Heather Dean is actually the title of a song. And so, the an editor who was working with me on the book said that should be the title of your book. Cause there you go. I had a different idea.
0: I thought but, if I would find, we would find you we would find Bobby Fisher at the same time, maybe.
1: Right. Exactly. Searching for Bobby Fisher. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was so. I covered that movie actually. Did you? So I got to interview, got to interview with the little kid that played the one that was the chess champion and. And Joe Mantegna and uh, yeah, everybody from that film is, and Steve Zalian before he became the top screenwriter in Hollywood. So anyway, whatever. Um, Searching for Heather Dean is a memoir that answers the question, why on earth somebody who was an interviewer of A-list celebrities, why on earth would she walk away from that business? So it, it, uh, it details that. Um, the feedback that i've gotten on my book it has been very tremendous uh anything from people saying it's very inspiring most everyone tells me it's such a page turner i lost so much sleep reading this book because i just couldn't put it down so like these are very very nice comments um um, but i feel like it's an interesting enough story that I, i put it in book form because really what 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 individual has had that kind of access to that many celebrities and at that level only to walk away? Like really, why on earth would someone walk away from that? Um, so that's the memoir it's available on Amazon and, uh, it may be picked up by a movie agent who is, who might make it into a vehicle for one of their, their actresses.
0: So stay tuned for that. And you can interview yourself.
1: <laughs> oh that's so cute. Oh my gosh, that's really funny. <laughs> I like that. Um so that's what I do and then also, yes, I produce uh, for H dot com their weekly podcast. Um at the moment H dot com's content, just as we speak right now, is really, really devoted to this uh terrible pandemic and upheaval that the world is going through. So um we don't have a coronavirus uh podcast i had to know uh, what, what's
0: going on right now i didn't
1: i didn't know hear anything about it just, Yeah, exactly i know it's a uh, yeah when you come up missed that you story know. on the evening right. news, yeah. right. Right. exactly the, what the podcast does though the podcast the whole mission of the podcast is to focus on the jewish home and it is called at home in jerusalem The podcast on h.com So every week it's a different, well-known Jewish Torah scholar or author or speaker who has something very specific to say uh, that enhances Jewish home life, um, lessons from the Torah. So that's been a nice bridge to having interviewed celebrities from the Hollywood world to now get to interview uh, stars of the Jewish world, Jewish stars. So that's the, that's the H uh, podcast. Um, we are well into our third year now of uh, the podcast on H.com. So now at this point, I get uh, a lot of questions and uh, invitations to consult other people on producing podcasts. Many, many people have questions of, um, you know, they want to start their own podcast. So they consult with me how to do that. Um, and I also run workshops on how business people can increase their, their business uh, to, to grow their business through media interviews. So all of these decades have been part of the media establishment. I know a thing or two or 500 on how to effectively pitch somebody who is a producer or editor um, for the chance at being interviewed or profiled on their television show, radio show. Um, podcast, whatever it is. So things that have to do with media podcasting, um, it's all under the umbrella of my company called Heather Dean Productions. So for people that are interested in following me there, so um, yeah, you can subscribe and get updates on uh, all of my projects on Heather Dean Productions.
0: Awesome. Well, Searching for Heather Dean is the name of the book, and I think those who have gotten to listen to this hour – with us together, have have gotten to discover just a little bit about who you are, and by reading the book, they'll get quite a bit more. Heather Dean of Heather Dean Productions, longtime celebrity interviewer, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, and I want to thank you for all the great work that you do. Maor is a fantastic, fantastic organization that I encourage a lot of people to explore. And if you already know, think you know about Maor, you should also encourage your Jewish friends to investigate their local chapter of Moor, because the work that Moor does, I know people that have been, are affiliated with it now, people that are, are students who have grown so much Jewishly. I bless you to continue doing your great work.
0: Okay, well, what a plug. Did not expect that, but I've got to extract that and use that in my own uh, PR. moving Good. forward. <laughs> Thank you so much, Heather. Thanks again. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.